Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock, hosted on Beachhead Media and other podcasting platforms. Aaron has served as a pastor, a chaplain, a professor, a writer, and a speaker, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. So in this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral theology, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today we are going to be talking about a nation in freefall that will actually fail. So Canada and many other Western nations are in rebellion against God and as a result are in freefall, in moral freefall. And it seems that there are many that are oblivious to this or deny this as a reality. But Canada isn't the first nation to fail. If you look at history, this is not the first time it has happened. It does happen. And so in this episode, we're going to discuss why this is the case. Now, Aaron, the idea of Canada or any other Western nation failing seems quite pessimistic. And some might argue that such a prediction is actually going to hinder our efforts. It's going to make it difficult for people to rebuild the nation. So why would you make such a claim? Why would we do a podcast like this? Well, probably because I'm too principled not to tell people the truth, and I'm not pragmatic enough to uh, necessarily concern myself with uh, people responding to it in um, a, a negative or a pessimistic way. I think that it's it's true. I, I want people to be aware of the tr- the reality of our culture and our time, and to be able to respond uh, appropriately. And we are in a, a very very bad way as a nation here in Canada. And I would argue that the United States is not far behind us. In some ways, they are ahead of us. And other Western nations are as well. Um, So we're going to talk about this because it's true. Mm -hmm. Uh, Canada will fall. There's no question about that. If as a result of this podcast, it serves sort of as reverse psychology and encourages people to change, well, of course, there's the possibility of things being turned around. But at this point, if you examine the evidence and the trends, it seems quite clear to me that Canada will fall. It's only a matter of time. Uh, But before we get into that, I want to note that it's very rare to do a podcast on February the 29th. It's true. (laughs) So uh, happy birthday to those of you that only get to celebrate your birthdays every four years. (laughs) Today's a, a... uh, this year is a leap year, and, and we have this rare occasion to do a podcast on February 29th. So if anybody's listening and they're a February 29th baby, um, happy birthday to to you in particular. Mm-hmm. My step-grandpa would have been 100 today. He passed oh, away wow. in January, so oh, wow. he made it 99. But he always said he was 24. He just waited to turn 25. <laughs> Impressive. Yeah, that's neat. So yeah. very, very neat. That's good. So what are some things tied to Canada will fall? What's the evidence that you would point to? I want to present people with several reasons why I think Canada will fall. And they're not in they're not ordered in terms of priority or importance necessarily. So um, I don't want people to think that we if we want to see the opposite happen and our country succeed, that we need to somehow go down the list in the, in a particular order and reverse mm-hmm. the trends. But all of these I think are factors that indicate that Canada is is will fall. Mm-hmm. So here's the first one that comes to mind, mass immigration. Now, so that everyone is clear on this, 
I'll, I'll start with a story. I, I was uh, driving down Howard Avenue here in Windsor, Ontario, and um, I had just come out of a store, and I noticed there was a lot of uh, young Indian uh, men and women in the store, kind of university age, uh, moving through the store shopping, and several that were working there. And I just took note of that. And then when I was driving down Howard Avenue, I saw a young Indian man walk across the street in front of me. And if you live in our community, if you if you reverse the clock 25 years, uh, there was a massive wave around the time that I moved to Windsor of immigration from China. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the students at the University of Windsor and the undergraduate and graduate faculties were, were Chinese. And now I would say the dominant uh, people groups that are coming at least to our city, are, are Indians. And part of me, so when it comes to Indian people, and when I saw that young man cross the street, my first thought is, I'd, I'd kind of like to get to know him. I'd like to mm -hmm. know his story. Like, I actually quite enjoy meeting people from, from other countries. Mm -hmm. We had a Bangladeshi family come out to my property a few weeks ago. They were purchasing an animal from me, and I spent quite a bit of time with them, just chatting about their background and their, their political views and whatnot. So I, I want to say right out of the gates that I, I love and, and appreciate the idea of meeting people from different countries around the world. And I do think there are evangelistic opportunities uh, for the Christian church to reach out to the proverbial alien and, and stranger. So we should never be you know, racially motivated. Like we're a it's not that we should ever be opposed to Indian people moving to Canada or Bangladeshi people moving to Canada. That's not, that's not true at all. But if you look at the nation as a whole, mm -hmm. uh, in 2023, on average, listen to this, in a country of about 40 million, Canada brought in around 41,250 immigrants per month. Per month. Per month. So over 40,000 new immigrants, largely from non-Christian countries, mm -hmm. per month. Well, it, it is impossible to evangelize that many people mm -hmm. uh, that fast and to introduce them to the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if you have the best evangelistic strategies in the world in all of the churches of our nation, and they don't. Most churches in our nation are not doing evangelism. Even a lot of the Reformed churches or evangelical churches, they're not doing evangelism. Very, very few lost people come through the doors of their church. They're primarily mm -hmm. uh, growing by having their own children or by reaching out to people from Christianized backgrounds or by transfer growth. Mm -hmm. And the problem is is not like the, the problem is not with the individual who chooses to come to Windsor, Ontario from yep. India for a, a graduate education. The problem is when you look at the the big picture and you realize that, Hundreds of thousands of people from non-Christian countries with alternative worldviews are coming into our country month after month, year after year after year. That will change the social and cultural and I would say religious fabric of the nation by virtue of the fact that they're not Christian people. It's just mm -hmm. a fact of the matter. And when I was chatting with this Bangladeshi family, they were sharing with me that, um, I, don't, I don't remember if he said 15 or 20 years ago, but... So, Let's just let's just go with that number. Don't don't quote me on the specifics of it, but let's say mm -hmm. fifteen to twenty years ago, he was saying, in his country of origin, roughly two out of or one out of ten, I believe he said, applicants for immigration to Canada was approved. So about ten percent of the people got in. 
he told me now it's about eight out of 10 of those applications are, are being approved. So it's much easier to come here. And this is why you have people from Southeast Asia uh, coming to Canada. And I would say it's probably similar, I'm guessing, in, in the UK, maybe a little bit more of an East Middle Eastern presence there, um, coming to Canada. And that is changing the social fabric. And he was t- saying to me how because liberal governments and socialistic governments mm-hmm. tend to be the ones that are more interested in bringing in immigrants because it inflates their voting pool. Yep. And because they're pro-death, I mean, they're they're in favor of killing our, our own offspring and our, our elderly, so you got to import a lot of people in order to keep the economy afloat, that um, they tend to vote liberal, right? Mm-hmm. They tend to vote for liberal governments. Yep. And so there's a voting... The, the liberal government, for example, or liberalized governments in Canada, the Liberal Party and the NDP are literally importing their new voting bloc. Yep. So there's a religious element to this, and there's a political element to this, which are also inextricably linked. So that's a problem. You, if The Christian church is simply not equipped and is not doing its job sufficiently to evangelize people from, from other countries, and literally you're just going to be overrun with even good people people that we could have a, per- a personal relationship with mm-hmm. and appreciate one-on-one. But the sheer fact that there's so many of them makes it impossible to to arrive at any other conclusion than that the historic Christian worldview that has largely dominated Western countries like Canada will eventually be diluted and go away. Mm-hmm. So that's I think that's just a fact. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I'm just not convinced that uh, the Christian church learned the lessons that it needs needed to learn during the pandemic. So even in our own church, you know, we had uh, several hundred people leave our church because of our pandemic response, as people know, and we had hundreds and hundreds more uh, come to our church during the pandemic, and many of them came because of our stance. Mm-hmm. Many of them have stayed, but a, a, a large cross-section of them have returned to their former churches. Like they just don't seem to care. Like it's it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that. I was talking to a, another Christian man today in another church about this, and I said, maybe because I'm such a principled person, I don't I don't understand how it is that so many people came to churches like ours during the pandemic, and they protested with us, and they they cheered us on, and they were you know rah rah rah. Let's 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 take the you know the world by storm let's let's change let's let's push back against government tyranny and when the dust settles and maybe a year or two goes by people just drift off into churches that that um are compromised in my view i've even had family members uh do the same thing mm-hmm. and it's 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 a reality it's not like i'm bitter or angry uh some people moved away right they have freedom to do that we're not chastising them for their individual choices. But if you look at it as a whole, a lot of people have returned to, some have gone off to plant vibrant churches that will be faithful, I think, in the midst of persecution. Many have just returned to the same old, same old, sitting under compromised leadership. Mm -hmm. And it's demoralizing, actually, to churches that took a stand to see that. And then we have, I think we talked about this a bit last week in Mm -hmm. our podcast, but we have people's views that if they just vote in a lesser evil, that somehow that's going to fix the country. Well, if you think of a, a river, let's say it's it's flowing south. Mm-hmm. Well, the head of the river is the religion of a nation, and the religion of a nation w- downstream will affect the culture of a nation. 
Hmm. Meaning it's institutions, it's values, it's worldview. And downstream of that, you'll have politics. So politics, the political structures and the political views in a nation are not what drive a nation. They are a result of a nation's culture, which is a, which is a result of a nation's um, religious worldview. So when you go way downstream and you think, okay, uh, if we fix politics, somehow that's going to fix culture, then it's going to fix the religious spiritual problems of our nation. That's not true. It won't happen. Politics is always downstream of culture. Culture is always downstream of religion. And so um, when we, for instance, in our country, we have conservative side to our political spectrum. There's a couple parties that would consider themselves conservative, and there's more of a liberal or left-wing side to our, our political um, persuasion. Generally, the more left you are, the more godless and anti-Christian you are. Generally, the more the conservative you are, the more at least secretly Christianized in some mm -hmm. way you are. But the reality is we don't really have a, a, a large... Um, conservative party in our country that is prepared to stand up against some of these systemic issues that we're experiencing. So to use the illustration of the cliff, one party might take us over the cliff doing 100 kilometers an hour, but the other parties are also headed toward the cliff at like 50 kilometers an hour. And they're both moving in that direction. And it's amazing to me that having gone through a crisis like we have, there's many Christian people that are prepared to vote in the lesser of the two evils. Um, this is a time, I think, for us to champion reform mm -hmm. and revival and restoration in our nation. But the reality is, I just don't think it's going to happen because people are prepared to settle to get into the car going 50 over the cliff mm -hmm. instead of going 100 over the cliff because they think it's, well, it's, at least it's better than what we have. Well, that's yeah. true. And I understand the, the pragmatic considerations of that. When you find yourself in a crisis as a nation, and you're being governed by tyrants and globalists and people that want to tax you to death, there is a temptation to vote for those that are less tyrannical, those that are less likely to tax you to death. But the reality is, if you put a, a, a party in power that still is fundamentally godless, mm -hmm. that still champions heathen ideologies, that still will not stand for fundamental freedoms in the middle of a, pan a pandemic, mm -hmm. um, you're just not going to bring revival to a nation. So because, and I don't think I'm going to change that through my podcast. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. I think there's yep. people that are absolutely convinced that the best path forward is incremental change. They're committed to incrementalism. I think they're they're going to be surprised at how that will fail um, because there's political powers, dark forces at work, even in the most conservative parties of our nation pushing towards more of a left-wing Marxist ideology. But it's because of that, um, you know, to cut to the chase, the voting for slow rollers, meaning those mm -hmm. that will take us over the cliff a little slower, it just, it just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't compute mm -hmm. in my mind how that is a good strategy. But I believe the majority of Christians in our country will vote for the lesser of two evils, but they won't they're not necessarily prepared to vote for parties or politicians that will actually represent a desire for reform or change in our nation. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Now, one question that comes up, even as you've mentioned, Canada will fail, and you've listed a couple, and I know there's some more reasons. Specifically, I want to use the word fall. Fall. It, okay, it, yes. it has failed, but I think it will fall. Canada will, as we know, it will cease to exist. 
I think within my lifetime, mm -hmm. if not before, because of these uh, systemic issues that I see in our culture. But go mm -hmm. ahead. Yeah. So essentially to that question, what does falling look like in terms of um, there won't be a placard that says Canada or there will still be land here, obviously, I, I would imagine. But what does that look like? Yeah. Obviously, morally, economically, maybe we're taken over by the Russians. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's... <laughs> Well, that maybe maybe wouldn't be such a bad thing right now, um, because at least the the Russians, as tyrannical and dictatorial as as Putin is, at least are taking a stand against some of the the moral uh, issues that Western mm. leaders aren't. So it's almost a tit for tat, um, and some yeah. will be offended by that because there's some people that will defend Western democracies even after they cease to be democracies till the death. Yeah. Um, but whatever. So when I say it will fall, um, it 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 will be judged by God. Mm -hmm. So when we look at God's judgment, um, we have the gutting of the economy. We have the, the gutting of the, the the prophets, the quote unquote prophets of the day will be put to death or run out of the country or mm -hmm. silenced. So the moral underpinnings of the country will be gone. And will there be people populating this land? Yes. But the mm -hmm. the blessing, the blessings, liberty freedom of religion, freedom of prosperity, uh, vibrant land ownership, those things will go out the door. The things that we historically associate with Christian values, liberty, uh, the, the, the ability to you know, freely worship God, to raise your own family, to secure and manage and own your own property, those, those will, will eventually go the way of the dodo bird. Mm -hmm. Now, just to jump ahead, I was going to mention this... Um, passage later on, but I think I'll do it now. So I was reading, I read through most of Ezekiel this week, and uh, in the first, Ezekiel's a bit of a difficult book to, to preach on a Sunday morning because the, the writer is essentially saying the same thing chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter mm -hmm. after chapter in different ways. So if you preach, let's say, a chapter a week, the first 25 chapters of Ezekiel, you're essentially going to be preaching the same kind of a sermon mm -hmm. uh, every single week with different nuances attached. But um, one chapter that caught my eye was in Ezekiel chapter 7. And there the, uh, the prophet was warning the people of God about the consequences of Jerusalem and Israel's rebellion against God and the fact that they would be deported into captivity. They would be taken into captivity. They would be taken out of a land as God removed his hand of blessing upon them. And I think this is going to happen in our nation as well, that there's there's cycles of obedience and disobedience, and when we disobey, God's God removes blessings from a nation. The na whether it's the rearranging of borders, the government collapses, liberties are taken away, uh, vibrant Christian witness is gone, mm -hmm. there's economic calamity, there's disease, there's famine, whatever it might be. These are all things I think we should anticipate. Mm -hmm. But I want to read a couple sections from Ezekiel 7. So in Ezekiel 7 verse 3, it says, Now the end is upon you. And I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all of your abominations. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel um, in ancient times about the fact that they, they had been blessed by God. They'd been chosen among the nations of the earth. They were God's covenant people. They'd receive mm -hmm. you know, the, the new wine, the oil, the land, the high fertility rates, all the great things that God associated with old covenant blessings. But they had worshipped pagan gods. They had sacrificed their children on 
the altars of Moloch and Shemosh and whatnot. So if you skip forward in the chapter, there's this very interesting statement where God says in verse 23, forge a chain, forge a chain. In other words, get the chain ready. What's the chain he's talking about? The chain that God's people will all be linked to, where they will be dragged off into captivity. Mm -hmm. This is a statement of judgment. He says, forge a chain. Why is he going to forge a chain? Why is he going to allow them to be deported into captivity? And listen to this description. Tell me if this doesn't describe, in many respects, what we see in Canada today. For the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. This is a pro-death culture. We abort our babies. We uh, kill our elderly. We kill our depressed. We, um, beyond human life, we have... um, well, let me add. Well, let me add one more to that mix. We're chopping parts off of kids, especially mm-hmm. parts that relate to reproduction. Yep. Interestingly, you know, you live in a godless culture when everything is anti-life and and pro-death or pro-destruction. And then, of course, we have uh, more of the metaphorical violence mm-hmm. that's taking place in our nation, um, where people are being suppressed, where spe- speech is being censored, where where uh, Christian people are increasingly under persecution to, you know, zip zip it mm-hmm. and to, to remain silent. He says, I will bring the worst of the nations to take possession of your houses. Think about that for a moment, people. I will bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses. Like that is literally what's mm-hmm. happening in Canada, where pagan nations who themselves are in chaos, that's why people are leaving them, are coming here and they're buying up our houses and our land. And from their perspective, you understand why. Mm -hmm. I will put an end to the pride of the strong and their holy places shall be profaned. We're seeing that in our own nation where we have historic Christian buildings and are now flying the sodomite flag. Mm -hmm. They're they're pulpits for uh, the promotion of death and abortion and transgenderism and globalism. We're seeing that in our own nation. When anguish comes, they will seek peace, but there there shall be none. So people, when when they're under God's judgment, they often quickly want, well, we're going to quickly change our ways. God's like, no, I'm going to let my judgment endure for a while because I'm going to bring you to your knees. See, pe- people mm-hmm. don't tend to learn real quick under God judgment, God's judgment. Mm-hmm. God often has to judge for years or decades, multiple generations, and then before people actually get it. And I just don't think that people are getting it in our country. I don't think the church as a whole is getting it. I don't think a lot of pastors are getting it. I don't think citizens are really aware of what is taking place around us. So it says, disaster comes upon disaster. Rumor follows rumor. There's going to be a stacking of judgment. They seek a vision from the prophet, while the law perishes from the priest and counsel from the elders. So isn't that interesting that those that are supposed to be God's moral policemen, God's covenantal policemen, they're looking to them for direction, but the the law has perished from them. The priest no longer is even familiar with the laws of God. Mm-hmm. The, the the prophetic voices are are compromised. The quote unquote elders of the nation are compromised. It goes on to say the king mourns, the prince is wrapped in despair, and the people, the hands of the people of the land are paralyzed by terror. According to their way, I will do to them, and according to their judgments, I will judge them. And listen to this. 
This is why God judges nations. This is why God judged Israel. This is why the northern nations were deported into Assyria. This is why the southern nations in 586 were deported by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. And they shall know that I am the Lord. Mm-hmm. So God will stop at nothing. To all. He's long-suffering and he's patient, but God will stop at nothing. He will punish, he will penalize, he will destroy this nation in order that his name might be honored and glorified. And I, I just, I, I'm just firmly convinced at this point, as I survey the landscape of our nation, the response of Christian people and others, they're just not, they're, they're just not prepared to purify themselves uh, before the Lord. Hmm. Um, so that's a maybe a long answer to your yeah. rather no, short that's... question, but I, I think on every level, so economically, familially, yep. um, spiritually, militarily, there's going to be a a collapse, mm-hmm. a fall uh, in our in our nation, and it's already happening. Yeah, right? it's like the slow frog boiling analogy, where it's and yeah, it, what you've said with political parties too. It's they they take a big chunk, then some not they don't even roll it back, but they just don't go as fast. They push pause, that kind of thing, tap the brakes. You know the um, the the reality is is that we're already in part in and under the judgment of God. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so if you if you're a, a, an economist and you are bemoaning the fact that you know the interest rates have gone up, that land is increasingly expensive in one of the most land generous places on earth. I mean, we have <laughs> copious amounts of uh, unused acreage in our nation. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we should be paying next to nothing for, for an acre of land. Uh, I mean, housing should be almost dirt cheap. We have forests and we have, um, you know, limestone quarries. We, we, can, we can manufacture our own concrete. We can uh, manufacture our own lumber. We can man- manufacture our own steel roofing, our own asphalt roofing. We can manufacture our own materials to build houses. Mm-hmm. It should be dirt cheap to build houses and buy land in Canada. But when you have a tyrant state that wants to control every square inch, who is in favor of depopulation on a certain level, mm-hmm. at least from the natives of the country, they, they don't they don't want it, uh, people that have lived here for generations to reproduce. But they want to bring people in from outside. Um, the they the bureaucracy and the red tape to build and to develop land is so frustrating. People are just like I'm just not doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at that from an economic perspective, and you think, oh well, the the reason why this is happening is because we have bad economic policies. Well, yes and no. We have bad economic policies, but really we have bad economic policies because we've rejected God's economic mm-hmm. policies, right? Yep. So God's economic policies, if they were the foundation for a nation's economic policies, would benefit uh, the nations. And we could give other illustrations. If you look at uh, the uh, the rise of anarchy combined with the rise of statism, both of these, anarchy and statism, mm-hmm. so on one hand, the people that are just wanting to live absolutely unencumbered by en- from any authority under the state, or the statist that wants the government to control everything. Both of these problems uh, stem from a denial of basic biblical categories Mm -hmm. about authority 
and its purposes and its limits. Mm -hmm. So we get economic problems are a result of abandoning God's laws. Problems in the realm of authority are a result of abandoning God's laws. The whole radical sexual agenda from transgenderism to the pride movement and everything else in between, that is all a result of abandoning God's mm -hmm. laws. Um, on and on and on and on and on. You can, you can every, every true issue we have in our nation can be mm -hmm. traced back to abandoning God's laws. And we abandon God's laws because the devil convinces us that God isn't good, that mm -hmm. God's a cosmic killjoy, that God's holding out on us, that God's bad, that his laws are archaic or yep. too traditional. So that that is another um, dynamic that's that's going on here behind the scenes. So we have mass immigration. We have the the people that just don't seem to really be willing to support and strongly encourage um, prevailing churches. Mm -hmm. I I would uh, again say to young pastors or leaders, when the next crisis comes, you need to decide in your heart and in your soul what you believe is right and wrong, and you need to take a stand regardless of whether your congregation is on board or not. Yes. Because even, even some of your congregants that are supposedly on board, when the proverbial fur hits the fan, they're, they're going to leave. Mm -hmm. Or after the uh, kerfuffle has uh, died away, um, they're just going to return to their failed churches. So I, I, we, we, cannot, we cannot live with some idyllic notion that you know if, if we take a stand for righteousness that the people are going to throng to our to our aid many people that that cheered me on just as one of many people that stood mm -hmm. against what we viewed as tyranny um many people who who were some of my greatest cheerleaders they've returned to their other churches mm -hmm. yeah. um and so it's kind of painful on a certain level, but it's just it's just part of the human condition. This has yep. always been been the case. Yes. So um, the uh, the problem of mediocre mediocre Christianity. If you look at many Christians in our um, nation, the way they're raising their kids, uh, they're re they're really kind of the Sunday morning only Christians. It's been part of the Big Eva. Um, enterprise for for generations now they they watch the same things they 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 kind of think the same basic way they educate their kids in the same systems that the pagans do they um you know pornography is is rife in many christian families materialism is rife in many christian families um the fixation on uh the idol of sports is is a big problem uh, in many homes, um, these these are all symptoms of people that are coasting. They're, they're kind of coasting through life. They're they're mediocre. You ask the average Christian in your church, name two times, three times when you have suffered for Christ. Many of them won't even be able to name one. Now some have, mm -hmm. especially over the last three or four years. But many they they keep their head down. Yep. They they come to church. They enjoy some psalms, some music, a sermon, some fellowship. They have an opinion on how the liturgy should be. But during the week, there's not a lot of transformation. They're not impacting culture. They're not necessarily living out their faith. They're, some of their coworkers don't even know they're Christians. Mm -hmm. If your coworkers don't know that you're a Christian, you've been there for longer than twenty four hours. That says something. 
about how you perceive your identity in culture. Another thing that I've um, noticed is the unwillingness of so many to consider in a fresh way how we should be educating our children and our young people. So even even in our own province, we've seen uh, several new Christian schools started up. Praise God for that. Mm -hmm. There obviously have been uh, existing Christian schools. Many of them are doing very well. We're not picking a fight with other Christian schools if they're educating people in the things of Christ. Great. You know, we we hope we wish you well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have Christian schools a- across our our own province, mm-hmm. and they exist in other provinces and other states and territories and Western countries. But they're generally underfunded and undersupported, and. Uh, even in our own classical academy at our church, there's still this weird fixation on accreditation and approval by the secular state. So there's some families that won't send their kids to our school because somehow in their head, they've convinced themselves that having a government-approved diploma or being able to get a scholarship from a government-approved university or to send their kids to some government-approved or accredited institution of higher learning is is better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't agree with that at all. Like I don't know why we're so fixated with accreditation and approval by the secular state that we knows we know for the most part hates Christ. Like why are Christian people by default so desperate for the approval of antichrist institutions? Mm-hmm. Let me just ask those of you that are listening to this podcast, why why is it that so many Christians, maybe yourself included, are so interested, so fixated on getting licensure or approval by people that hate your Jesus? Like, why is that so important to you? And I think it's because deep down, we're, we're kind of mildly ashamed of our faith. We, we, we want approval from the world around us. Now, I understand there's some practicality to it. Like, if, if you want to go into let's say law, or you want to become a physician, that to the best of my knowledge, there are no Christian institutions in our nation that will educate you so that you can enter those fields because the Antichrist system has the educational institutions uh, in their grip. And they, they simply won't allow Christian institutions in many jurisdictions to, to start up to offer law degrees or, or yeah. MDs. But People that pursue those degrees are in the minority. Like most people that are going to, quote unquote, they used to be called secular, but I would just say they're antichrist institutions, mm-hmm. yeah. are educating your kids in things that the good Christian institutions could just as readily educate them in. Okay. But Christians are cheapskates and we don't want to pay twice, right? We pay taxes to the government for public education, and it's like, well, I just don't want to pay it again in, in the form mm-hmm. of private education. But it's a strategic blunder, because what we're continuing to do is we're continuing to say to the secular state, well, we're okay being in the minority, we're okay having these little struggling institutions here and there that the government doesn't really care about anyway, because they're only turning out a couple dozen students a year in terms of graduates, and we keep we we, we, we keep funding our uh, funneling our money to these secular institutions that are going to train our kids in all sorts of godless heathen ideologies, and we're just under-supporting and underfunding um, 
some of these new Christian institutions that are starting. Now, I'm not going to guilt trip anybody into coming to our school. If you don't want to come to our school, frankly, we don't even want you mm -hmm. because uh, we don't want people here that are you know, here like dragging their feet or here, here reluctantly, but I'm just speaking strategically about it. When, let's say in our, our county, we have, you know, 500,000 people and there's maybe uh one, two, three, four, five, I think about six or seven Christian schools I can think of. If the combined total student body at all of those schools is like, let's say six, seven, 800 uh, kids and thousands upon thousands more of our Christian kids are still being educated in pagan institutions. Well, just look look around the curve in the road. In 10 yeah. years, in 20 years, how is that going to create a venue for vibrant, uh, engaged Christian young people that are going to think Christianly, that are thoroughly indoctrinated in Christian values in a Christian worldview to affect change in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's it's just going to be very difficult for that to happen. Now, I am optimistic that in in the short term, many of our Christian young people will make a difference in their future vocations. But until people realize that it's it's more blessed, and we should be, it's more blessed to support Christian institutions and mm -hmm. in education. And until Christians realize that we could, we should care less about the government's accrediting bodies or mm -hmm. licensure bodies, that they're not superior to ours, they're inferior, it's going to be hard to make headway and bring about substantive change. Yeah. It is very interesting, even with our, our classical Christian school here. Um, yeah, the notion that uh, when you have an approval from the government, that it is somehow a better end product that you get. And even though you might have certain knowledge, it's almost like, well, it's great if you can get an A+, plus, but an A+, plus in woke ideologies is not something you want to be proud of. Well, it, you know, um, I've I've been part, I've sent my kids to Christian school, I've been part of Christian uh, post-secondary institutions, mm -hmm. and I, I remember at least a couple schools that I've been associated with, it's like their greatest marketing tool is, well, we're approved by the Ontario yeah. government, or we're accredited by this accrediting agency. And they're they're like they're excited about that, and mm -hmm. and they use that as a marketing tool, which actually belies a lot about what they think about their own educational processes, mm -hmm. and whether they actually do you actually think. So if let me put it this way, if you if your greatest excitement is to say, okay, send your kid to our Christian school, and your greatest marketing gimmick, I'll call it or tool is send your kid to our Christian, think about this, our Christian school, because the non-Christians approve of our Christian school. Mm -hmm. What does that say about your Christianity? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so weird. Yeah, it's true. It would almost be like the American military saying, hey, you should send your young people as recruits to join the American military because the North Koreans approve our military. They accredit our military. You'd be like, okay, that that's so weird. Like, who would say that? Yeah, exactly. But Christian people, for whatever reason, are desperate for the approval mm -hmm. of non-Christian people. Mm -hmm. And that's called people-pleasing. Yeah. And it would be better for us to start our own institutions and educate our own kids who, based upon their merit, become the kind of people 
that every conscientious employer wants mm -hmm. to hire based upon their merits. And by the way, if people have noticed this, in, in education, there has actually been a move away from, well, what degree do you have? What diploma you have to what do you actually bring to the table? Mm -hmm. Employers, I've even noticed this since I, I entered the employment world, are much less concerned about what degree you have because almost everyone has one. Mm -hmm. And they're far more concerned about your skill sets, especially in yeah, computer science and you know, some of the engineering fields and manufacturing fields. Like, can you do the job? Because mm -hmm. there's a lot of impressive people out there with, with post-secondary education that are dimwits. Yep. Even in the Christian church, when I was uh, younger and sort of entering into vocational Christian ministry, there was much more of an interest. You'd, you'd be much more likely to find youth pastors and associate pastors and even senior pastors with bachelor's or master's degrees than you are you will today. Mm. Um, there's lots and lots. Like even in our own church, we have, I don't know, what do we have, 26, 27, or 28 or something like that, people working on staff in various capacities. Very, very few of them have advanced degrees in, in uh, theology or biblical studies. Mm. We've kind of trained them in-house, and they're very competent people. Frankly, a lot of them are more competent than what you're going to get out of your stereotypical Bible college. So that's something to maybe encourage parents, too, like um, th that uh, I'm not saying that nobody should go through those hard, secular, antichrist institutions mm -hmm. to go into medicine or law or whatnot. Some people have to. But we have to also be very careful on what, what students do we send through those. We... If we're going to send a student to a institution of higher learning to study for law, we better send someone that's mature mm -hmm. and sharp beyond their years yep. and is very firmly affirmed by their church community and their parents who have a, a, a brilliant mind, who can withstand the lies. And there are people like that out there. Yep. Very few, but there are people like that out there that can stand on their own feet even at like 18, 19, and 20 years of age. But yeah. most of them can't mm -hmm. in, in my experience. Yeah, it's really good. Um, so the other thing that comes to mind is um, lifestyle change. So during the pandemic, people were thinking, okay, we need to start our own businesses. How many people are doing that? Some are, but very few. We need to get our kids out of um, Rome's schools. That, I think, has been a positive. Many, many, many people have uh, taken responsibility to educate their kids. Um, but many are still working for the beast, working for corporations that belittle them or shamed them or penalized them or forced them to make decisions against their conscience. And now that the smoke has cleared, they just mm -hmm. seem to be content to be working for the beast again. And... um as we mentioned, as we've mentioned in the past, if you work for a corporation or an entity that persecuted you, or that forces you to take courses in various antichrist ideologies, and you're enduring that for the mm -hmm. time being because you need to put bread on the table, but you're actively pursuing other forms of education, starting mm -hmm. businesses, maybe partnering up with conscientious Christians who are starting businesses or have corporations that aren't going to force you to do things against your conscience. Great. But if you are persecuted or you're being forced day by day to be exposed to DEI ideologies or mm -hmm. pride ideologies or cultural Marxism, whatever, and you're just not, you're not even making an effort to find alternative employment. Mm -hmm. 
it's going to be rather difficult to feel sorry for you when the next crisis erupts in culture, which could be this afternoon, yeah. who knows, and you are now under the thumb of the beast and you're being forced to compromise your values. And I, I don't understand why so many people are just, they seem laissez-faire about that, but I have a suspicion it's because they're comfortable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's comfortable to stay where you're at. Um, accumulating debt, we did a podcast on that. If you're not actively, proactively trying to get out of the system, uh, try to be, you know, when you're when you're um, wed to the proverbial beast because they hold your mortgage, they hold your car loan, they hold your credit card debt, on and on and on, whatever your debt might be, and you're not actively, proactively trying to realter your lifestyle or alter your lifestyle to get out of that, you're you're a target. Uh, you're going to be a target. You're going to be someone that can easily be manipulated because you are you are yoked to them mm-hmm. financially. Um, okay, here's another big one, and this is where um, you know maybe maybe there might be some offense, and I'll lose a few more friends. <laughs> But um, in, in my in my way of thinking, the the pastors and theologians of our age who understand the enemy well have a responsibility. I have a responsibility. You have a responsibility. Mm-hmm. Our colleagues in ministry across our nation have a responsibility to preach the truth and minister to our people day by day in their mm-hmm. joy and their sorrow. We also have a responsibility to warn them about sin, to call them to repentance, and in the process call ourselves to repentance because we all have sin in our own our own lives. Um, but we also have a responsibility to equip God's people for the work of the ministry. Mm-hmm. And I think many pastors, as I have now had a chance to, to observe the things unraveling in our country over the past three or four years, there is a hearty group of pastors in our own nation and south of the border and across the pond who are seeing the godlessness of our day and age. They're ranting against the godlessness of our day and age. They're warning our people to avoid the godlessness of our age. But I think many of them are making a a critical mistake in that that's all they're doing. They're not really equipping God's people for the work of the ministry. Um, many guys I see tend to be fixated on ecclesiastical matters. So there, there tends to be, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm a theologian myself. I have a, several advanced degrees, and I, I, I would hope people would perceive that I think theologically, but I'm not really all that interested in spending the majority of my time fine-tuning and delving into all of the finer points of our ecclesiology or our liturgy because we only have X number of mm-hmm. years on this planet, and we're, we're in a crisis, but uh, it seems to me that many Christian guys are distracted by what, what I would call intramural theology. Mm. Yep. So how many podcasts, how many sermons, how many tweets, how many Facebook posts do you should you actually be putting out about your eschatological position? There seems to be this revived interest in feuding over eschatology. Um, and even in saying that, there's going to be some, well, that's extremely important. Okay, well, it, it is important, but I'm older than most of you, and I remember in the early uh, 1980s when it was a trend back then to yep. argue and fight over eschatology as well, and I'm not sure it brought about a great deal of cultural transformation. 
But we want to. F- there's a lot of intramural sparring about over eschatology. There's a lot mm-hmm. of intramural sparring over Christian nationalism. There's a lot of intramural sparring over credo versus pedo baptism. There's a lot of intramural sparring about whether we should be singing psalms or hymns or modern music in our our worship services. There's a lot of intramural sparring about the where kids should be in a service. Should they be in the service or out of the service? This is why I'm going to offend a lot of my listeners. And I would say an undue fixation on those things, mm. while at the same time, that's coupled with guys that have not started institutions. So if I hear a guy ranting and raving about how how liturgy should be and, you know, presenting if we just fix our liturgy we're going to fix the culture if we just do this or do that or get the finer points of our ecclesiology or eschatology right we're going to fix culture but you've never planted a church you've never started a christian school you've never you don't have a business network like you're not a pioneer you're just a talker mm-hmm. and there's there's many guys that are good theologians and they have good things to say and they have good arguments to be made but they're not pioneers, and they're mm-hmm. not entrepreneurs, and they're not builders, and they're not building institutions. They're just arguing about ecclesiology, and their audience has fundamentally been reduced to their congregation mm-hmm. and maybe their denomination or their network. And let me just say this, guys, like it or lump it, the broader culture doesn't care about your eschatology. Mm-hmm. The broader culture could care less about whether you baptize babies or you baptize adults. Now, are these important issues for us to discuss? Yes. But we, we only have 24 hours in a day, and eight of those were sleeping. And if 16-year hours is spent fixated on fine-tuning your theological uh, prowess, your theological views, and you're not actually bringing about active change in the culture around you, we're done. Mm-hmm. Now, some will say, yeah, but truth is the way to bring about change in our culture. Well, I agree on a certain level. Preaching the truth helping people to think Christianly about, for instance, God's laws in relationship to culture, mm-hmm. the nature of the Christian family, the nature of marriage, mm-hmm. the nature of what it means to be in covenant. I understand that these concepts have a direct influence on your actions, but we need to help people to take those concepts and put them into practice. And if for the last two or three years you've been fine-tuning and massaging the theological concepts, mm-hmm. but your people aren't actively bringing about change in culture, which starts in their families, I agree, starts yep. in the church, starts in the families, then all you're doing is you're, you're, you're fine-tuning the precision of your church, you're fine-tuning the precision of your, your organization, you're fine-tuning your arguments. But the reality is, look around, like, where are the institutions? We've had three or four years now. Who's starting banks? Why are we not starting banks? Who are, st- who are the people starting educational institutions? Who are the people that have actively started new, new, new businesses? Mm-hmm. Who, are the people that have, who are the guys that have planted churches in, in the last three or four years? Where are you? Where are you people? Very, very few men, and I would say women as well, are, seem committed to, to, to thinking practically. It's almost like, well, it's it's more lofty to be a theologian and to think great and lofty thoughts about ecclesiology and theology. But where is the fruit of your labor? Where are the actual changes taking place to your culture? And are you influencing godless people? How many people have actually come to faith in Jesus Christ out of the pagan culture as a result of your ministry? Let me ask you that question. Mm-hmm. 
it's wonderful to see Christians raising Christian kids for Christ. It's wonderful to see that. We want to see that. We don't want to lose our kids. But what percentage of your church, we have just gone through the greatest crisis of our generation. Mm -hmm. How many lost people have you led to Christ? If you've led no one to Christ, don't blame God for it. Think about, maybe maybe I'm not allotting my time properly. Maybe I'm too fixated on getting our ecclesiology right. And I think more like a theologian, but I don't think enough like a missionary or an evangelist. Mm -hmm. Now, here's here's how I want to end this, this portion of the podcast. If you disagree with me, fine. Save this thought. In five years from now, what fruit will you have borne from your endless and incessant conversations about getting all these theological points correct? So at the end of the day, what fruit are you going to bear? Are you going to bring bring about difference in culture? I was a young man once too, and I, I, I was fixated on the finer points of theology. I was probably much more argumentative than I am now, much more opinionated, much more dogmatic about my, my theological views. That's part of being in your 20s and 30s, I guess. Yeah. But as you grow older, you realize, okay, these things are important, and I'm, I'm pretty uh, committed to my views, but I'm, I'm more uh, gracious when I interact with people who have alternative views. Whether it's on you know on these on these ecclesiastical issues, I don't I don't pick fights with people over music styles. I don't pick fights with people over baptismal mode. I don't pick fights with people over eschatological timelines. I can stand on my own feet and argue my own positions, but I rarely bring them up in this podcast because I want to see greater unity in the Christian Church, and I want to see guys actually affecting change in the culture. Mm-hmm. So, if you're a theologian, great, I love you, but we need more practitioners mm-hmm. and. Ideally, we need guys that are theologians that are also practitioners that are going to build institutions and bring about change in uh, in our culture. So if you haven't built anything, you need to go start building something before you should expect people to look to you as some sort of a mentor or guide or coach in how to affect change uh, in culture. Yeah. John 15 tells us God, the Father, is glorified by fruitfulness. So it's a reminder he's not glorified just by doing something, but by actual outcomes. Yes. And you know what? There's a lot of people who have been taught that fruitfulness is simply faithfulness. Well, in your relationship with Christ, that's true. And God wants us to be faithful even if nothing happens around us. He does want that. But when you study history, people who—let's take the Puritans, for example— Let's take the folks that came over, the 102 that came over in the Mayflower. Five of those people were great, 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 great grandparents of mine. Um, I directly descend from Edward Doty. I directly descend from John Howland. I directly descend from John and Joan uh, Tilly and their daughter Elizabeth. They're my 11th, 10th, and 9th grandparents. They all eventually, their descendants intermarried into the Hatch line, which is my my, uh, dad's mom's uh, line. So I have Puritan blood in me, and those people were driven by convictions, but those convictions were put into action. They actually got on a boat. Mm-hmm. They actually got, they left Holland, they left England earlier, then they left Holland. They got on a boat for 65 arduous days and came across the Atlantic to to basically nothing mm-hmm. and participated in building a nation. And some of them were conscientious Puritans, 
They actually believed in the Puritan cause. Some of them were just along for the ride. Um, so there was different kinds of people that were on that boat. Many of them died in the first winter. My 11th great grandparents, John and Joan Tilly, died the first winter and left their 13-year-old daughter by herself. She would eventually marry one of the servants, John Howland. Those people did something. And there's a lot of people today that consider themselves Puritans because they study the belief systems of the Puritans. Well, I believe the same things the Puritans did. You know, I believe that Christ is supreme over his church. And they like to write about the Puritans and talk about the Puritans. But they don't build anything. Mm-hmm. Well, the Puritans actually got out their hoes and picks and trowels and shovels and guns mm-hmm. and built something. Those are the kind of Puritans we need today. So people that are, yes, grounded in their theological views, although people are never going to fully agree with you or me, but there's, there's nobody in the planet that agrees with everything I agree with. And I'm never going to agree with everyone else. There needs to be you know, room at the foot of the cross for differences of opinion. But we need people to build Plymouths. We need people to build civilization. And yeah, there needs to be discussion and talks and podcasts and sermons about that. But I don't want my whole ministry to be defined by, well, he preached a lot of sermons on it. He did a lot of podcasts. You know, he ranted and raved against the government. He sent out tweets, put Facebook posts on and wrote articles. That's not all that impressive. Mm-hmm. What's impressive is when you can build prevailing churches, build prevailing business networks, build educational institutions in a culture that hates your guts and makes it near to impossible to do any of that. Mm-hmm. Running people for office, right, for political office. That's what we need more of. Mm-hmm. And so I want to challenge every Christian leader that's listening to this podcast. What is your plan? What is your pa- plan beyond preaching and theological precision? and instructing your people, catechizing your people in the Christian faith, what is your actual plan? Like, what are you actually going to do in order to bring about substantive change in our culture? If your view of change is just changing mindsets, and you think, well, I'm just going to, my mindset's been changed, I'm just going to change other people's mindsets, we're all going to change everyone's mindsets, so we all think differently, but we don't act differently, who cares? Mm -hmm. So we've purified our minds, but your mindset must necessarily and inevitably lead to actions in order to bring about change in culture. It's not just about getting other people to think like we do. We often talk about we want people to be thinking more Christianly, but we also want people to be acting more mm-hmm. Christianly. So that it's a pet peeve of mine mm-hmm. because I'm thinking we're like, this is 2024. Like, let's put our shoulders to the plow. Yep. Let's actually build stuff. Let's actually get things done here. Yep. And yeah, we, we do need to dedicate a, a portion of our time to intramural debates about theology, but um, we, we have to go beyond that. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, those of us that have been raised in you know, Bible, Bible teaching churches, evangelical churches, brethren churches, Baptist churches, Reformed churches, there's very few role models out there for what that even looks like. And the yep. seminaries didn't teach us to do that. Mm-hmm. The seminaries teach us uh, methods and theology and, and church history and kind of how to process concepts and read the, the scriptures well and study theology, but they don't do a good job in teaching us. Frank and Molson don't do a good job in teaching us even how to run a church. They certainly aren't teaching us how to plant churches. Mm-hmm. They certainly aren't teaching us how to be missionary-minded. They certainly aren't teaching us how to start business networks. They sure, certainly aren't teaching us how to start institutions or how to run people for political office or these sorts of things. Um, 
So we have to we have to think originally and we have to think clearly and strategically about these things and come up with actual solutions. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you this, that's what I'm committed to. Yep. Right? I'm far more interested in whether people are impressed on my eschatological views than they are with did the guy actually put his shoulder to the plow and build things for Christ in culture to the glory and honor of God. So yeah. if that doesn't if that doesn't if that's not changed like tomorrow, if we don't see that starting to change tomorrow, we're done. Mm-hmm. Right? There's just going to be a lot of people with correct theology and really nothing to show for it. Weak family structures. Um, until Christians stop divorcing each other, fornicating, uh, delaying marriage, living hyper-independent lives, educating their children in the things of Christ, until we get our families in order, mm-hmm. because that's part of building culture, that's the most fundamental building block of it, that's going to be a problem. Even the value of the family clan. I think mm-hmm. most of us in the West, you meet people from other other um, cultures, and like, that's kind of weird. Like two or three generations live on the same property. Our mindset is we're very much influenced by the pioneers, right? Mm-hmm. Like leave and cleave is literally get married and move a long distance away from your parents. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Many of us live in other municipalities than we were raised in. But there seems to be a um, a lack of thoughtful reflection on how families and I would say clans can support, you know, one another. And I think there's probably some benefit to that. So as I think about um, my own kids, I think to myself, it's, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's, near to impossible for them to, for instance, own a home mm-hmm. without some assistance or guidance from my wife and I mm-hmm. or from their in-laws. Yep. The the ability to do that is just extremely difficult on on a modest income, even, even those that have two incomes. It's mm-hmm. very, very difficult. And I've talked about this before, but the, the price of houses uh, exponentially has accelerated beyond wages. And so the affordability factor of houses is very difficult. So if parents aren't thinking strategically, okay, I need to pay my house off. I need to get out of debt because I want to prepare to help my kids, uh, you know, get a house. Um, and to think about how to do that responsibly, uh, it's going to be very difficult for for our young people to to make that difference. And so what I'm what I'm thinking about. So I was raised in a broken home. I love my mom and dad. Um, but they don't serve Christ in the Christian church. And, um, you know, I love my siblings. I have no bitterness against my siblings, but most of them don't, they don't serve Christ. That's just a reality. Mm-hmm. Same with my cousins, same with my aunts and uncles, right? Mm-hmm. I love them. You know, I, I don't have bitterness toward them, but the reality is they're not committed to the things of Christ in the way that I am. That's just, that's just a reality of it. Mm-hmm. Are there a few? Yes, there are some. On, on both my wife's side and mine, but there's there's many that aren't. And we all kind of, uh, you know, come together once in a while and have family gatherings, but there's no clan mindset. There's no, like, hey, mutual support mindset. And um, so I never had this modeled for me, but what I've been thinking about now that my kids are adults is how can I help to create a family culture that is more like a, a, a Christian clan? And by, by the way, I'm not using clan with a K, right? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but a, a Christian clan where we think more broadly about our broader uh, relatives and, and how do we help and support and encourage each other. 
people coming from the Middle East or from Southeast mm-hmm. Asia often do that by necessity because they're living in more of a desperate circumstance. Like people have to support each other as a broader clan. Yep. We've lost that in many respects in North America, but I think it's something we'd be wise to reconsider. How can parents position themselves to help their kids? How can kids position themselves to help one another? How can mm-hmm. we mutually support one another in business and house ownership and property ownership, even if we're living you know, geographically a, a little bit more separated? Yeah, it's good. I think that's a good idea, but I don't think it's happening a lot. Um, ch- again, church members, uh, maybe I'll come back to that. There's there's reasons for people to leave churches. I get it. Um, you know, I don't I don't begrudge people that decided um, that it was time to to leave the country. I honestly don't, but I, I hold these issues uh, in tension because. If if everyone's gonna gonna scatter to different places and we're gonna kind of thin out our ranks and just have a few hundred Christians here and a few hundred Christians there, and if we maintain this idea that you know the ideal church is like the Cheers bar where everyone knows their name, you know your name, and ideal church is maybe seventy five to hundred people where everyone knows each mm-hmm. other and everyone's kind of interrelated, that's not intimidating to the broader culture around mm-hmm. you. That doesn't. Cr- provide you with the kind of money and resource and political clout to affect change. We need bigger churches. We need churches that intimidate the enemy. We need churches that can fund large institutions. Mm -hmm. We need churches where people don't just come out and cheer and rally behind the latest pastor that took a stand or got a fine for the government or spent a couple weeks in jail, but people that say, I'm going to be loyal. I'm going to commit myself to covenanting together with these people year after year after year through thick and thin, through Mm -hmm. the difficulties and challenges. But again, we we just tend to live in this culture where people flake out too quick. Mm -hmm. People come and they go, they come and they go, a minor offense and they're gone. And this weakens churches. And you know, there's lots of discussions. You can find bloggers and whatever. They're always trash talking the latest pastor that was involved in a scandal. But the reality is pastors come from congregations. Pastors that fail, for the most part, it's the congregation's fault. Pastors that are showmen, it's because the congregation permitted that. Uh, pastors that are unprincipled people, it's because the congregation permitted that. Or treated them like showmen. Yeah. So if people come to our church, for example, to to, to be um, to use you know, our context as an example, if people come to this church and let's say I'm preaching, and as soon as I say something offensive, they just leave, and then they do the same with the next church and the next church and the next church, what you do without maybe even knowing it is you communicate to pastors, no, you need to preach in a way that doesn't offend me. Mm-hmm. And so... Person A is offended by maybe a theological point you make, and person B is offended by a relational decision that you make, and person C is offended by a financial decision that you make, and person C is affected, or D is affected by a programmatic decision that you make. Mm-hmm. And over time, you have all these different little offenses on different levels, and they add up, and people leave and come and go because there's always little offenses taking place in the life of the church. And what happens is over time, pastors just become sort of like mushy middlemen. Mm-hmm. They don't make any hard decisions on any of these issues because from experience they've learned, there's also going to be people leaving, 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 leaving. And I, I just can't appease these people mm-hmm. anymore. So we need, uh, if 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 we're going to see substantive change in our culture, we need people, frankly, that are more loyal to their churches. We need pastors that are more loyal to their yes. churches yeah. rather than just looking for the next break. 
Mm-hmm. You know, isn't it funny that when pastors are called to other churches, it's usually always a bigger church, <laughs> yeah. right? Now, maybe it's because God does give people bigger stewardships based upon their experiences, but um, pastors tend to be somewhat disloyal to their churches, coming and going, coming and going, always looking for the you know the the the, the next big break, the the next largest mm-hmm. church to to pastor. Um, I think I've seen a bit of a, a turnaround in that in my generation, where people tend to stay longer, but. The point I want to make is um, it's it's difficult to imagine that our country is going to move in in a positive direction when uh, pastors abuse their authority, mm-hmm. pastors are passive in many respects, and congregations are behind all of that yep. by treating churches like businesses, by acting like customers. Are you going to satisfy me? Are you going to please me? Are you going to provide a good show for me on Sunday? Are you going to say what I want you to say? Um, they come and they go, you know, rah, rah, rah. Thanks for taking a stance, pastor such and such. Okay, the the smoke has cleared. Now we're just going to go back to our old church. Like, what is that? That says you don't actually value bold leadership. Mm-hmm. So that's a problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. Um, so thinking Canada will fall. You've listed a whole bunch of reasons. What, I guess, outside the church, just in broader culture, there's some other things probably that you could point to. I mentioned a culture of death. I mean, when you live in a nation that is comfortable butchering its babies, when you live in a nation that is comfortable castrating your youth, when you live in a country that says, if you're depressed, you're probably depressed because of the culture you live in. Mm -hmm. If you're depressed, we're going to put you to death. We want to make it easy for you to have access to uh, narcotics, which leads to overdoses and people living on the streets and whatnot. When you live in a culture like that, um, it's hard to imagine that culture is going to go anywhere good. When you live in a culture where the tax rate is through the roof, um, we now are being taxed on the carbon that we produce. Mm-hmm. And you got to have a pretty low IQ to buy into the government's narrative that they're taxing carbon and then taking portions of that and giving it back to you in the form of rebates to bless you. You got to have a pretty low IQ to buy into that narrative. Mm-hmm. They're stealing your money. They're giving it back to you to buy your vote and you're supposed to thank them for it. Mm-hmm. But most people have such a reduced view of economics that they think, oh, I get a check now for, I don't personally get one. I don't know, maybe maybe I've been skipped. But I get a check now in the mail every three or four months or whatever they come out for X number of dollars. So, oh, that's a good thing. Somehow I'm being blessed by the state. It's like, newsflash people, that's your money. They stole it from you. Hmm. They took it out of your back pocket. They took their cut. They're giving a little bit back to you to appease you to virtue signal and to make you think that they're benevolent and have your mm-hmm. best interest in mind. They're crooks. Mm-hmm. They're swindlers. This is a scandal. So when the government has taken taxation and used it to sanction theft, property theft, monetary mm-hmm. theft from people, that country has no future. We talked about our censorship bills. They're censoring free speech. Mm-hmm. That will be pro uh, retroactive. So... If you've preached sermons in the past or made comments in the past that 
and go against this new hate speech legislation, you have to retroactively go back and find those and take them down, or you can be charged retroactively for something you said 10 years ago. Wow. Um, the conversion therapy bill, again, which mythologizes uh, Christian marriage, th these are all indicators of a country that is on the verge of collapse. Educational uh, institutions are broke, or not educational institutions, but public institutions are bro broken. Let me ask you this. Can you think of one public institution you actually trust? I can't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, are there people within law enforcement that I trust? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Do I trust law enforcement as a whole? No. Are there people within the judiciary that I trust? Yes. Lawyers and judges? Yeah, I do. Do I trust the institution as a whole? Not anymore. Mm -hmm. Within the government, same thing. Within education, within mm -hmm. same thing. Within medicine, mm -hmm. like you're kind of wary now. Like, who are these people working for? What's their ideology? So when when you have a a, a culture where the institutions have lost trust because they're promoting godless ideologies. They're, some of them are participating in the tyrann tyrannizing the citizens. Mm -hmm. Some of them have no regard for charter rights, which are essentially God-given rights. Uh, many of them are working for their uh, pensions, mm -hmm. not for the good of the people. You, you don't have you have a country that is going down the drain pretty quick. And the final reason, Chris, why I believe that Canada will fall is because we deserve it. We deserve it. We have shed blood. We have forsaken Christ. Mm -hmm. The Christian church for the large part has, has refused to purify itself from its sin. We're acting like the world. And we deserve it. We deserve divine judgment. We do not deserve a strong and brave and free country. We deserve God's judgment as a nation. Not to say that every individual within mm -hmm. it yeah. is complicit in that, yeah. but we deserve to see this country go the way of the dodo bird. And frankly, I would welcome that. Unless there's national repentance, and I hope there is, mm -hmm. unless there's change in the Christian church. We often emphasize uh, personal salvation. That's great. You need to personally put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think what needs to be emphasized more than anything else in our generation when it pertains to the church is the purification of Christ's people. Mm -hmm. If the church doesn't purify itself, if we keep looking to the government to save us, if we keep voting for compromise, if we keep allowing the pagans to educate our kids, if we keep spending like the pagans, if we if we conduct our marriages and our families like like the pagans, and then if we spend our time instead of looking for unity in the church around the fundamentals of the faith, mm -hmm. you know, John 17, if we spend all our time dividing and fighting and trying to get clicks because on our social media because we've thrown out another bombshell to divide and fragment the Christian church, we're going nowhere. You don't have to listen to me, but I feel like I'm being a prophetic voice right now. And I believe that everything I've said is true, and... It's based upon my my observation of how God works through history and my observation of what's taking place uh, in our culture around us. Canada will fall, and so will the United States, and so will the UK, and it's already happening. We are in a crisis, 
And unlike maybe a, a personal crisis or family crisis that unravels in a few hours, mm -hmm. national crises tend to take several years, if not decades. And so they tend to be less, they feel less acute. Mm -hmm. But our, our country is in, a, is in a moral freefall. And unless there is radical change and spiritual revival really, really soon, we're done. And people just need to know that. That may not be a good, this may not be a good news podcast. This may not be a feel-good podcast. This may cause people to be bluesy, but it's a fact. And just like Ezekiel came to the people and he said, This is what's going to happen to you. And God is not going to be, God is not going to pity you. It's going to happen. People need to brace themselves for the full onslaught of God's judgment upon our nation because of the state we have put ourselves in. Mm-hmm. So the, the natural response of a a listener, myself included, is what what is our step? And I, I think I already know some of them, but can you spell it out for well, us? Well, we need to pray and repent. We need to pray personally and corporately in our families, in our marriages, in our in our, our um, uh, churches. We need to pray and we need to repent for God to be merciful. That doesn't mean that he's going to remove his hand of, of judgment, but we need to pray and repent. And again, we need more than personal conversions. We need purification within his church. Secondly, we need to continue to build. As long as we can, we need to continue to build Christ's kingdom rule here on earth. We need to, to, to build his values and his lordship into all spheres of life. Mm -hmm. It's easy to spend our time exclusively focused on the purification of the ecclesia, but we need to go outside of the ecclesia and we need to purify ourselves in every sphere of life that we find ourselves in. We have to conduct ourselves in business as Christians would. We have to conduct ourselves in education as Christians would, in politics. No compromise. Mm -hmm. Do not vote for compromise. Th this whole incremental nonsense, it doesn't work. We're not incrementalists. We shouldn't be incrementalists really in any area of life. No, the reality is things change incrementally. But if if we posture to the culture around us that we're we're okay with just minor wins here, no, we're not okay with that. We mm -hmm. are prophetic voices. We want purification. We want purification now. Mm -hmm. We want people to act Christianly now. Think Christianly now. We or God will forge the chain, and He will drag us away. And you know, while I in in preparing my thoughts in this podcast, I was a little reluctant in all honesty as i mentioned to you uh, beforehand to do it because yep. you know it's it's negative well it needs to be said maybe it will serve as a bit of a, a reverse psychology have a reverse psychology effect and that people will sort of, sort of wake up and move forward but i i want people to know the trajectory is bad canada mm -hmm. will fall mm -hmm. and all western nations will fall unless there is national and individual and ecclesiastical repentance and that repentance will also be tied to fruitfulness, where the people mm -hmm. of God will get busy building Plymouth, the new Plymouth, or the new Plymouths, mm -hmm. building a nation under God. Will we make mistakes along the way? Of course we will. If you study the history of the Puritans, they did, they did some pretty dumb things. Mm -hmm. They made some very bad decisions. They, were, they participated in violence at times. They had people's heads on pikes. Uh, again, that's 400 years ago. Like You may think, well, that's what they did back then. But... It's kind of weird, right? They, they, there were some violent acts that they committed against the Indians. There was some violent acts the Indians committed against them. It was, certainly wasn't this idyllic, you know, 
beautiful, mm-hmm. um, gore-free process of building civilization. But I would argue ultimately they did more good than bad. And uh, we, we are the beneficiaries of, of much of that. And our turn has come. Our, our nation is collapsing just like uh, Britain was. Mm-hmm. And that included persecution of Christians back in the you know, early 1600s. And our turn has come to, to get on a boat and to build a new nation. And uh, the, the, the Puritans could have stayed at Leiden in Netherlands and just talked about ecclesiastical matters. Mm-hmm just fine-tuned and purified their congregation a little more, made it a little more faithful, a little more pure, you know, corrected their liturgy a little bit and, you know, got, got their music a little better and preached a little more clearly and, you know, made sure that all the in-house stuff of church life was, was um, you know, the T's were crossed and the I's were dotted. Mm-hmm. Well, they concerned themselves with that, but they also got on a boat. Mm-hmm. and built a nation and we need people to get on the boat and build a new nation and, and that means leaning in and rebuilding civilization to the glory and honor of god that's about it mm-hmm. so as you listen to this podcast you may be thinking a couple of things one you may be thinking that you're very isolated this podcast goes to a lot of listeners throughout well all over the place uh canada u.s uh, and other parts of the world and one of the, the things we have said in re- earlier podcasts is the value of moving to like areas where there's like-minded believers. And so that was cer- that would certainly be a an action point to get on the boat literally and move somewhere where you can find uh, like-minded people with this this uh, vision. And then also pray. So which is an interesting response to a podcast. Probably not a lot of us when we listen to a podcast, listen and end the podcast and pray. Um, but that is what we need to do. And so just as you're listening to this, obviously, if you're driving, don't uh, close your eyes and pray, but um, do not just let the, the message be heard and then move on to the next thing in the queue uh, and continue on like that. So thank you, Aaron, for sharing that. I know it's it's hard to deliver that kind of a message, but we appreciate it. I appreciate it. I know many of our listeners do as well. And uh, as we finish this podcast, a couple of quick housekeeping reminders. Obviously, you've probably found this podcast through a podcast platform of some sort. We wanted to let you know again about Beachhead Media, uh, which is something we've tried to build. We are building uh, to be able to take every square inch for the name of Christ. And so that app is available in the Google Play Store, the Apple Store, wherever you get apps to be able to download that and have uh, access independent of censorship. Uh, right on your phone. There's a lot of other good podcasts on there as well. And we hope you can uh, tune into that. And then we hope as you pray, you um, take this matter seriously. You'll continue to engage and hopefully we'll have you back next week to listen to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.